Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm joined by my wonderful, talented co-host, Joe Hagen. Hi, Joe. Hi. I would ask you how you're doing, but when you ask people how you're doing nowadays, there's just, uh, you're inviting uh, too much anxiety into the conversation almost immediately. You know, I heard at the beginning of the pandemic, someone say you should ask people how you're doing today. Instead of a global, how are you doing? I really like that. And I've tr- been trying to institute it. Uh, so I'll ask you, how are you doing today? Yeah. And, and even how are you doing right now? Sure. And how am I doing right now? You know, I'm happy to be here talking to you, Emily Jane Fox, because uh, I feel like when we get together, we work through a lot of um, of what's bothering us and what's bubbling to the surface. I'm, I don't want to call it like therapy because we're, we're news, I do. news people. Okay. Yeah, it's good. It's news therapy. In its own way. And I think it's good. You know, this week, um, I have been thinking back to how it felt the day after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Mm. And so much of what has happened uh, was what we feared, right? I mean, some people said you didn't have to fear. We wondered about what could happen. But so much of what was feared has come true. And... Uh, no more was that that was completely evident to me while watching the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary. Mm, uh, I watched it this, the, uh, on Friday night. You guys watched okay. it this week. We watched it this weekend. I watched did you it watch with it with your girls? There you I go. did. And it's both incredibly inspiring, powerful reminder of what's at stake in our electoral politics. But it was. Also a reminder of what was at stake all along and that we knew all along was at stake. So now we're at this like unimaginable historical cliff in which, uh, you know, the right wants to finally achieve its decades long goal of closing down women's rights. Right. We know this. It's like kind of the writing is now on the wall. And I guess the thing that really stuck out at me about the documentary, The Notorious RBG, is that in her confirmation hearings in 1993, she, you know, she directly linked Roe v. Wade with the citizenship of women, right? The citizenship. There's no equality uh, for women if they can't control their reproductive health and therefore their destiny as a member of society. And there I am sitting with my three daughters thinking, you're about to be denied all of this. this well, hopefully idea. not. Well, and I guess that's the fear that I'm having this week is I'm thinking as we look out at what's happening, you know, we extrapolate. And maybe there's more fear there than is necessary. But I mean, we've seen how this GOP has acted and they seem not to have any breaks. That is exactly right. You know, what you just said, I hadn't really thought about the world in that 
through that prism. So let me just go back to it because I'm now in our therapy session grappling with something that I, I hadn't really thought about before, which I guess mm-hmm. all good therapy leads you to do. All the all of the worry and the angst that this world felt after President Trump was elected, it's actually like all of it's come true, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so much of anxiety is you fear, you fear, you fear, and all of that anxiety turns out to be for not you have worried and you have fretted over things that will never come to pass but that's anxiety is not rational and so you you go through the motions knowing that the worst case scenario is really not going to happen but you're anxious about it nonetheless kind of everything we were worried about happened and it it's a it's sort of a a case study in anxiety and why why it can come true it makes you a little nervous about the other things that you worry about but the racial tensions that we were worried about and the president stoking those tensions happened the violence across city as a result of that happened the continued um debasement and use of inflammatory rhetoric and plain old racism, they've all come to pass. The concern about packing a Supreme Court has happened and an RBG passing in particular has happened. The fear of a complete catastrophe, no one saw a pandemic happening, but but some sort of event like this happened and the way in which President Trump has handled it is worse than I think anyone could have imagined. And so mm-hmm. everything that sort of the fear mongers or we thought were the fear mongers were warning us about. It's actually, I feel like it may be worse in reality. I think that it, it, in that way, it does sort of feel like the, the day after the election, but the way I've been feeling this week has felt like that the day of the Kavanaugh hearing for me, just emotionally, that's, that's back where I was. Um, I don't know where you were in that, period of time. I was in New York working on a story about these young women who went to Holton Arms, which is the school where um, Christine Blasey Ford went. And I had interviewed about a dozen women who had been uh, sexually assaulted or harassed um, by other young men who went to private schools at private schools like Georgetown Prep and the other schools like where Justin Kavanaugh went and it was such an emotionally difficult story to report because you're talking to all these women who have had terrible things happen to them at a very young age at this place where this woman and this incoming Supreme Court justice went to school and most of them hadn't told anybody about it until the moment they were telling me about it sometimes tens you know Decades, decades, decades later. And it was very emotional. And um, I felt that way this week because it felt to me in that moment when, when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening that nothing mattered, that this incredibly brave woman was standing up in front of the world and all these women who were incredibly brave to talk to me were doing things that were very difficult to them. And it wasn't going to matter that the justice was still going to be confirmed and it was just reduced to politics and bad politics at that. What everyone hates about politics was happening and playing out on the national stage. And I feel like that's what's happening right now. 
and I feel like there's nothing we can do to stop it. Now, that's not true. There are things we can do to stop it. They don't feel like they're immediate, and I think that things are going to happen before we're able to exercise our right to vote. But I really feel like the the thing, the takeaway from my week this week has been that elections have consequences, right? Who we elect matters. And it doesn't just matter. It doesn't just Mm -hmm. matter in the two-year term in Congress or um, a four-year term in the presidency or a six-year term in the Senate. They matter for life because they appoint Supreme Court justices. They matter in who people appoint as state attorney generals, as we've seen with the Breonna Taylor case this week. All of these things are not just terms. They're systems that we're having in place, the the systems that we've elected into how we govern Congress and the systems are in place of how we decide Supreme Court justices and how police forces are able to operate and how officers are disciplined and how violence is controlled in the street. All of these things come down to who we vote for. And they're not the most obvious things that we vote for when we go to the the ballot box. They're not who does great in a debate or how the stock market is that day or what the jobs numbers were that month. Those are very important things. They matter to everybody. They matter to me. They matter to you, I'm sure. But there are bigger systemic things that we're voting for that aren't necessarily what we talk about in a presidential debate or what are on the front page of the newspaper on a normal day, not this week, because there are so many big things happening this week. But on a normal week, these aren't the things that we we sit down and talk about when we, when we think about going to the ballot box. But these are really the, the fundamental things that we're voting for. And they've been weighing heavy, heavily on me this week. And um, right. I'm, I'm curious to see if you've been feeling that and what people who you are talking about, talking to or reading are saying to make you feel either better or worse. Well, uh, the big conversation this week has been, uh, you know, whether Trump, uh, you know, is sort of setting uh, everybody up to try to steal the election, right, in any way he can. He, he may, um, you know, try to uh, call bullshit on the vote and send it up to the Supreme Court, right? Again, back to the Supreme Court. There's this idea, and both Trump and Vice President Pence have discussed this, uh, we need nine judges— in case the election is um, contested, and we need them to decide it, right? And the thing that's been upsetting on the one hand is that this idea that part of the goal of shifting the courts is to have that as the kind of backbone of their lockhold on power, right? And that's disturbing, and it has made me think a lot about what is it that we need to be asking this next nominee. Now, this next nominee that they're going to pick this Saturday, we don't know who it is, but by the time you're listening to this, you may know, could be Amy Coney Barrett, this Catholic Republican that a lot of the Republicans are excited about, could be her. But they're going to, it's going to be an opportunity for us to um, talk about uh, what's at stake. And, you know, we saw Kavanaugh, he would say things like when they asked him about Roe v. Wade, for instance, oh, well, it's settled law. And that's all I'm going to say about it, because he was, we know what he really thinks, right? But he'll never say what he really thinks. And I have been thinking, um, 
about like why is it though that um, they are the Trump and the Republican Party are trying so hard to undermine the democratic process. And, and one of the theories that I thought was interesting is that really they're trying to um, depress the democratic vote by making people think that it's going to be fraudulent anyway, and why bother? Mm. And apparently there is some polling, which I have read about but not seen directly, that shows uh, that when people think that the election is um, not going to be fair or authentic, uh, they're less likely to vote. Mm. And that maybe this is a strategy of the Trump campaign to depress the vote by making people think that it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to be stolen. And that's nefarious in and of itself, but it also speaks to the fact that they realize they have to do everything they can to depress the vote because in a fair and straight election, they would lose in a landslide or something like a landslide. I think that they realize this and that their sort of Hail Mary thing to do here is to um, freak people out to the point where they think, uh, you know, I don't know if these, when I think about these polls, I'm not sure I buy that. I think people will still vote like crazy, right? Um, in any event, I, when I think about this Supreme Court nominee, I think they have to be drilled, grilled, I should say, about Bush v. Gore, mm. about the idea of Supreme Court deciding elections at all. I mean, a lot of people came away from that. That, that scarred the nation. Can I ask you, though, on a, on a rational, reasonable level, I agree with yeah. you. But if these people are, if this nominee is grilled about that, and either you, that their answer, their answer scares the shit out of you, or it quells your concern about it, what does it matter? Because they're going to well, say what they say, yeah. and then the Republicans, no matter what that person says, the Republicans are going to pass this nomination oh, sure. through. And I don't think the majority of Americans who have not made up their minds yet or who are not totally settled in, they don't. those are not the people who care about the Supreme Court nomination, right? So right. the people who care about the Supreme, who's, who's nominated to the Supreme Court have already made up their minds. You're either a conservative who's made their peace with President Trump or you are a Democrat who was always going to vote for Joe Biden. So the people who are, are left, there are so few undecided voters. There are probably more wishy-washy voters or voters who maybe were not necessarily going to be energized to turn out, though I think that that number is probably smaller than you think it is. Like, those people are not deciding based on who the Supreme Court nominee is because those are those are inherently unideological people. So sure. probably what they're going to be swayed by if they're going to vote is how the pandemic is, what the numbers are like for jobs numbers in October. And mm -hmm. I just don't think that the these things matter so much to you and me because we are engaged and we mm -hmm. are voting on ideological lines the people who are not are not going to care about the answers to those questions that's my well and and joe biden's supposed strategy is not to focus on the nomination I think that's process. wise can i tell you right i have a couple of thoughts so i don't think that the democrats or joe biden 
should really focus on this at all because the people who care about it are going to independently care about it. They're not going to need Joe Biden to focus on it. They will know the stakes of that decision on the election. That's full stop. The only way that they should be talking about it is healthcare is now on the ballot, right? So for the first time, I mean, everyone obviously feels healthcare so immensely and particularly during a pandemic, the fear of Obamacare going away is greater. But if you are hammering in that message, there's no, I think there's no single greater issue than healthcare for people. And so if Democrats were smart, I think that that's the way that if they're going to talk about the Supreme Court nomination, and I think that they should talk about it in this particular way, that's how they should talk about it. The other thing is, um, I've been reading a lot and listening to a lot about um, how people really are taking the message that Joe Biden is not all there. And yeah. and they're running with it. Like I keep hearing it. I keep seeing it. Yeah. And people are really believing the fact that Joe Biden is a step behind or he can't string two sentences together. Mm-hmm. And it's made me, I want to retract something that I've said over the last few years where I have repeatedly said that Donald Trump is a master brander. And initially when I kept hearing this, I kept thinking like, oh, Trump's, it, he strikes again, this genius marketer mm-hmm. has succeeded because he keeps saying Sleepy Joe and keeps talking about how he can't, you know, put two sentences together and and people are repeating that and believing that. I actually think that Trump is a parrot. He's not a master brander. Fox News is a master brander because most people are not listening to the president say that or looking at him on Twitter saying that. Most people are just watching Fox News. The, The vast majority of politically engaged people are just tuning into Fox. And that's the thing that they've been seeing over and over and over on their cable news channel of choice and the president is then parroting what he hears on Fox because he knows that Fox is a master brander. And so we really have the Murdochs to thank for mm-hmm. what is what is repeated and propagated and now believed by a large portion of the electorate of the electorate. It's not the president who's come up with a strategy. It's the president who has followed a strategy that Fox News came up with. This is Inside the Hive. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. As we are recording this, Joe Biden has uh, said he's not doing any more, uh, you know, touring around and doing any press right now because he's going into debate prep. Great. And I everyone think should that, prep for debates. I yes, it's, you know, and, and the truth is, I think this will be, uh, you know, the big moment for his for this piece of propaganda you're discussing to collapse 
utterly and to maybe even make more of an explosive impact. And I thought it did that already to some degree when he spoke at the convention, the Democratic convention. I mean, he was cogent. He was focused. He was angry. That's a teleprompter speech, though. And And that's what they said. That's what they said. But And so the question is, can he improv? You know what I mean? Can he do it on his feet? And we're going to find out. Um, I think that he, you know, from what I've seen, uh, he slips on his own, you know, tongue all the time. Uh, But uh, I think that he will cohere. I'm hoping he will cohere. I mean, the last time we saw a debate with him where he was just having to you know, uh, do it in the moment was with, uh, Bernie Sanders. And he, frankly, he blew Bernie Sanders off the stage and everybody was shocked and surprised. It seems like that was a miniature version of the strategy that he's going to be doing now, which is set up low expectations and then come in, uh, like a hammer. So well, the president is setting up the expectations that he can't string two sentences together and that he's not with it and yeah. he can't remember his own name. So it's actually, it's an it's obviously been an effective strategy that the right has been propagating. Well, and, and they're worked. also trying to propagate a side. You know, this is sort of the the chess play here. Is they're trying to propagate a sort of side uh, story that if he does well, it means he's on drugs. Um, which everyone which did is, say about the, our current president too. And right, and, and his son <laughs> still says, uh, you know. It still makes me a little bit angry and mad that we have two old, very old white men on stage as our candidates. But here we are. It is 2020. Um, these are these are who we've got, and so we've either got to rally behind them or we don't rally behind them. Wait, Joe, do you vote in presidential elections? Do I, Joe Hagan, vote in presidential elections? Yeah. I do. You know, there's a whole debate amongst political reporters about whether political reporters should vote in presidential elections. And it's been going on for decades. And here, I'll, I'll give you the arguments for and against. So against is... Well, against voting, I'll I'll, I'll clarify. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you cover the elections and you cover the candidates, it is a partisan act to then make a choice. And people who read your work could say, "Well, if they were if they wanted that person to win, isn't their coverage skewed?" The argument for voting is it's your democratic right, and arguably you are one of the more informed citizens in this country, and you know these people, and you know the stakes very well, and so you should exercise your right to vote. It's patriotic. So many people have died for this right. There are many people in this world who don't have the ability to to vote in what is normally a free and fair election, and so there's there's the for and the against. So you vote, you vote in a presidential. Well, election. listen, my citizenship. Uh, and my civic responsibility to vote comes before my, you know, uh, profession, profession or career. And also, you know, by the by, anybody who's heard me on this podcast for the last, you know, uh, three <laughs> or four months, I don't think is going to, uh, you know, have there's no mystery as to what we're talking about. Because and I, I think this is a good point you bring up, because I have spent most of my career as a journalist, being very careful and protective 
uh, about, um, you know, objectivity and trying to be in my work as fair-minded as humanly possible. And only under duress, under the most dramatic of circumstances, could I ever have imagined uh, removing that mask, if you will, you know, that, I mean, I think that we have entered times that I never could have dreamed of. One of the things that uh, Peter Fritchie and I talked about last week in the episode about the history of Nazism in the early 30s and what parallels we might draw there was that the similarity between what we're what we've seen over the last few years and the rise of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s was the inability of people to have imagined him. It was just unimaginable that a person could come out of nowhere like this and alter the course of history, alter the culture, alter every aspect of society, and basically take the bedrock on which you thought you were standing and destroy it. I mean, this is a president who has attacked my profession as fake, has turned huge, enormous chunks of the country against me and anything I say or do, and basically created like a bad faith argument uh, that I can't get out of and that has trapped us. I want to say one other thing about, you know, what it means to be a journalist in the last few years. There was a time when the bandwidth of the media and the nation could contain a whole variety, a cornucopia of different stories. Let's, you know, if you went back six years ago and looked at the the stories, the top stories in the news, it would have been all kinds of things, you know? Obama would have been one of them, right? And what's happened since then? Trump is the only news. We're like both victims and beneficiaries of that to some degree, but like, it's not what we want, you know? We want to be writing about all kinds of things that are happening in this world. And Trump has vacuumed up all the attention. And by the by, last thing I'll say about this, that's what fascism does. It focuses everybody's attention on one figure. You know, what is this, North Korea? It's like, he's all over the place. You can't get away from him. He sucks it all up and he does it through, um, you know, shock, shock and awe every day saying one lie after another or trying to get everybody's attention by being, you know, a, a semi criminal gangster president. And so we're all paying attention. And all of which is to say, back to your point, is that, uh, hell yeah, I'm voting. And I'm sorry to say, and I hope that one day we can return to a place where there's a center, any kind of center that holds, that feels like we're not at the cusp of something that is extra democratic. You know, you're making me, you're making me so I did not vote in 2016 because I covered the campaign so closely. And, and as a reporter, I didn't feel right. And I think that we are constantly doing gut checks about what makes us comfortable in our ob ability to be objective and what doesn't make us comfortable. And I didn't feel comfortable at that moment. And I feel to totally right in my decision. And if you were to have asked me two years ago, if I were going to vote 
in this coming election, I would have said absolutely not for the same reasons. And I cover these people and I write about the campaign. And I'm struggling a little bit now because I think that there is right and left and then there's right and wrong, right? And I think as I, I try to explain this to people all the time when people say, well, reporters are they're calling Trump out in a way and they're making statements that are don't seem par- that that seem partisan. They don't seem objective. And I the way I explain it is like there's partisan and then there's the ability for a reporter to call someone out on their blatant racism or to say like this person is lying and I'm going to tell you that they're lying and that's not partisan. That's that is actually being objective. And so I think that I don't have to say I ideologically agree or disagree with either one of the candidates, but I can say that I don't think that that what's happening is right. And that's sort of what I'm struggling with. And I will ultimately make a decision and I'm going to have to make one soon because I I have to send in a mail-in ballot. I'm not registered to vote in California because I live in New York and... Um, you know, it's all tricky right now in pandemic times, but I'm really struggling because it feels like we are in an extra election. Like we're not just Mm -hmm. voting for two candidates who are on the ballot. We're voting for the soul of our nation. And I don't want to not have a voice in the direction of our country at the most pivotal time that I God willing, this is the craziest election that we ever face. I have a fear that it may not be. But uh, yeah, it's it's tough. And, and, and as you said, our profession has been so vilified over the last four years. And um, what we do and the, the care we take, you and I, but, but also the many, 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 many people who do what we do and do it more rigorously and more often than we do it. We take so much care to get things right and to be thoughtful about our decisions. And it hurts my soul to know that like every political reporter I know takes so much care in the lines that we draw. And they're not, some of them may seem arbitrary, but most of them aren't. And we are very careful about decisions we make, about associations. I don't, you know, when people stop you on the street to sign a petition for like saving the animals in the forest, I don't even do that because I don't want to, I, I don't want to, I don't know enough about the organizations. I don't know if they are donating to political candidates. I don't sign anything. And I have to say, I'm a reporter. I can't sign that. My fiance wants to donate to a candidate and I tell him he can't donate because I don't want to have that association. I'm very, very careful. But I'm also a human and I'm also a citizen of this country. And and it really hurts me a lot when, when people attack journalists as partisan because there's just so much care given to how we sort of separate ourselves from our humanness in order to objectively bring people the truth. And it's been, it's been very difficult these last five years. And there's no woe is me about that. We're incredibly privileged people. And to get to do what we do is... A, fucking dream every single day and to get to have a voice when so many people feel voiceless is incredible but it's tiring it's tiring when you're always trying to do the right thing and you have someone at the top who should be celebrating that 
turning half the country against you. Well, and let me say, I everything you're saying is beautiful and kind of the essence of why we do what we do. And just as a side note, I'm a I'm registered to no party and have been uh, my entire adult life, mm-hmm. um, in part because of being a journalist. But I have to say, one of the things that's been disheartening has been a loss of faith in what journalism can do, watching as some of the greatest journalism that has ever been put together in this country has happened in the last four years. We talk about, you know, we joke about, oh, another Watergate, you know, one Watergate after another, right? Everything's a gate. Everything's a gate, but some of the things that have come out in giant articles in the Washington Post, investigative stories that took weeks and months to make in the New York Times about the corruption, about, you know, the the crimes that that have been committed behind closed doors, and they just wash against the rocks, and then they wash away, and it's the next, on to the next phase. Any number of them, as people point out time and again, would have destroyed any other president from the past, right? Looking back at the, you know, the Watergate uh, break-in, I mean, that is like small change compared to some of the unbelievably... Uh, you know, criminal activity we've seen from the Trump administration that has been reported in newspapers for all to see. And it's, I I talked about, I talked with Jake Tapper about this of CNN a few weeks ago. You know, how is it that you continually get up there, you know, pushing the truth and the news and then see that there's no effect? And he said, well, the only thing I can say is I hope that 10 years from now, my children will look back and know where I stood. Mm. You know, I mean, the best you can hope for in this time is to say, this is where I stood when the, when it counted, when the, when everything was falling apart. This is Inside the Hive. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. If it feels, and I think it does feel, like nothing matters in the moment, as we talked about earlier, then hopefully things matter in the history books, right? So if we feel like grilling these Supreme Court nominees won't matter in the moment, and I really don't feel like it it will, maybe it matters 10, 20, 30 years from now that we ask these questions. Maybe maybe that's why you do it. I, I think that's the point I was going to try to make, and I'll make now, is that uh, when we're asking the nominee about Bush v. Gore, is we have to get them on the record and underline what they say. You know, what did you think of that as a legal case? Fine. But do you think that a uh, Supreme Court should be in the position to decide elections? I mean, that I, I, I found a quote, kind of a, an amazing um, quote from, of all people, Alan Dershowitz. Oh, our God. Um, I know. You You don't want to like uh, point to Did I ever tell you about at, the time that I, Alan Dershowitz screamed at me and I was still in bed? 
<laughs> Did I tell you about this ever? No, but it sounds horrible. We'll come back to it. Go, go read his quote. Well, anyway, he said about Bush v. Gore decision. The decision in, in the Florida election case may be ranked as the single most corrupt decision in Supreme Court history because it is the only one that I know of where the majority justices decided as they did because of the personal identity and political affiliation of the litigants. This was cheating and a violation of the judicial oath. So I just want to know, agree or disagree, new court nominee? I mean, if you're in the position to have to decide the election, do you think that's right? I want to know if Alan and, Dershowitz still feels that. I part of me wants to hang up with you. I'm so sure I can call he would reverse right it. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody I may do likes that. to reverse now. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the thing to do now. Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell. It's like to uh, you know completely come up with some you know pirouette of hypocrisy to get out of anything you said or did before. Um, in any event, all I'm trying to say is. You know, it looks like a foregone conclusion that there's going to be a new right-wing originalist judge in the Supreme Court, and there's going to be nine judges, um, you know, uh, six of whom are going to uh, vote uh, in a prospective, you know, election case, probably in the direction vote for Trump, right? And that's wrong. I mean, I don't want to agree with Alan Dershowitz, but let me agree with the old Alan Dershowitz. I think that's wrong. And even if it happens, it needs to be on the record. And these people have to be seen in the history books, if not, nowhere else, as having made these decisions. Mm. I mean, we hope I'm... there are history books. That's, that's the thing, because now the history is going to be rewritten by Trump and his cronies to be this patriotic uh, thing in which he's the Messiah, right? That's That's the next... Well, here's what I'll say. Did you did you see the president went on Thursday morning to pay his respects to Justice Ginsburg and he was wearing a black mask and the crowd who had gathered to pay their respects to Justice Ginsburg started yelling, vote him out, vote him out, vote him out. It sent shivers up my spine because... The president never wears a mask and to see him look muzzled as what sounded like thousands of people were screaming to his face, vote him out. First of all, I've never seen anything like that, a, a, a sitting president taking such public criticism from such a large body of people at a, certainly not ever, but definitely not at a memorial and someone who's cared so deeply about optics that he wouldn't wear a mask even in situations that would physically protect him as a germaphobe to to have the mask on in that moment felt so optically terrible for him and knowing his psychology i don't know that that's a moment he recovers from because mm -hmm. he looks awful and the sound of thousands of people rising up saying vote him out is like everything that bothers him. It, mm -hmm. All he wants is people to love him. It's why he's surrounded himself with sycophants in his private life, in his business, in the White House. All his entire life has been built around 
avoiding Protecting any kind himself of, from that. Yes. He has, he has literally built his entire world so that all he can hear is praise and adulation. That's why he only has Fox News onto his plane. They don't watch CNN anymore. It's, it's why he's gotten rid of anyone who has been able to raise any kind of objection in the White House. It's why you have people like Michael Cohen and Sam Nunberg and everyone who has worked for him in the Trump with Alan, Alan Weisselberg and Alan Garten, all these people who are just who were at one point sycophants. It's it's really was such a stunning thing to watch and to listen to. And if you haven't watched or listened to it, go watch it. It's just a real moment for for me in this in this campaign cycle in this moment in time. And I don't know. I don't know what he does as a reaction to that. But I don't think that that moment is going to sit well with him. No. And um, I thought it was interesting that he decided to wear a mask in that moment. I feel like he right? must not have decided. I feel like that must have been the rule for the event. Right. I'm guessing. Not, because... not, not that he's ever uh, cared about rules. I mean, it's, uh, oh, well, that is a moment that I hope will last beyond the next 24 hours. We don't know. This is Inside the Hive. Our next thing that we're going to be paying attention to and thinking about is not just whatever this nomination turns out to be for the court. Trump is going to want to drive that into the middle of the news cycle and make that everything about that. Uh, But it's going to be up to Joe Biden to come into that debate and next week and change the script make the script about what he wants to make it about. And uh, it's about to get real. It really is about to get real because a lot of these other news cycles have been, you know, created from rallies or from, uh, you know, media strategists and uh, memes and social media combat and crazy stories that have erupted in newspapers. But this is about to be person against person, right on the TV screen. We're going to see what it all comes down to. And in the meantime, let's breathe. Oh, that felt so nice. I really do feel like this has been therapeutic. I came into this feeling so bad. I have to say, this week, you know, sometimes I'm incredibly blessed. I'm incredibly fortunate and I, I truly recognize that every single day. And what that means is that most of the time I'm engaged in work that I really love and care about. I am in a very happy, loving situation at home. Uh, my knock wood, my family and everyone I care about is healthy and safe. And so I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky every day. And most of my day-to-days are okay. And then something like the Supreme Court fight happens and something like the decision uh, in the Breonna Taylor murder happens. And I feel like my limit is two. So you can have the pandemic plus one. If you add a third variable to that, it's like it's too much to for any human to bear. And so 
because I'm lucky and my day-to-days are okay, it, you sort of like, you sort of forget the shittiness that is all around us. And, and at least I've been, my mind has been able to trick me into forgetting the shittiness around me most days. And uh, I realize that that is such a luxury. But this week I have felt like it was the second week of the pandemic. Like that feeling of overwhelming darkness of are we ever going to get out of this? And, and when we do get out of this, is the world going to be unrecognizable beyond repair? And it's just, it's felt really dark having the things on top of each other stack in such a way that feel like they're not just all the, what's happening with the pandemic is horrible. Presumably one day it ends, God willing, decisions that are made on the Supreme Court by their very nature are meant to be more permanent, right? And have huge wide-ranging consequences and that's why these nominations matter. Uh, What is happening in our justice system and the racism that persists in this country and the unjust treatment of black people, particularly at the hands of police, that's systemic and Every, it feels like there's been so much talk about what we can do better. I don't know that there, that is necessarily translated into action, but it's, I have felt more hopeful about the situation over the course of the summer. And then what happened earlier this week in Louisville, it just, it just makes you feel like, oh, there wasn't, there wasn't real progress. There was, there was talk of progress And the thing that bothered me most about the indictment that came down earlier this week was so much of the activism has been about, say, Breonna Taylor's name. And the two-page indictment did not say her name anywhere. It was an indictment that had nothing to do with her. It it brought her and her family no justice. It, It didn't bring her into the indictment at all. And it felt like, that that is like almost it has to be deliberate and if if you want to recognize a life that is so unfairly and i think criminally lost to not even acknowledge what happened to her is feels purposeful and it feels mm-hmm. just so wrong talk about being on the wrong side of history it it it's just it's painful to watch and i'm like it is. It, I recognize that it, it has caused and will continue to cause so much pain for so many people who are more connected to it than I am, her family, people in her community. And it's just, it's just it feels like so much suck all around us. Well, I watched the press conference that the Attorney General in Kentucky, Daniel Cameron, gave. And it's interesting that you just pointed that out, that they didn't mention her. But uh, he was asked towards the end of that, tell us what the phone call was like with the family when you told them there'd be no murder charges coming down. And just to paint a scene here, you know, we're we're magazine writers, so we, we would paint this scene. Here's how I'd paint that scene, okay? This African-American attorney general in Kentucky who took time out of his busy schedule to take a star turn at Trump's Republican National Convention and give them cover 
uh, so that they would not appear to be a kind of white supremacist party, right? A heavy lift. Yeah, this guy's one of the most eloquent, you know, politicians that you're likely to see, by the way, Daniel Cameron. This, he's definitely got a future in the Republican Party. But here he is, you know, it was all kind of, you know that when he was telling them, that family, what their reaction was. And, or you can well imagine. And he said, well, that was a difficult conversation. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, you have some real chutzpah, man. You are an incredibly, what a Shakespearean figure this guy is. That he is, not only that, that when he did his speech at Trump's Republican National Convention, he probably knew already what the verdict was going to be and where this investigation was going. People already knew. There were already newspaper articles about the blow-by-blow about what happened. What is amazing is that in that that press conference, he, he said... I want to, you're going to hear a lot from influencers and activists and celebrities telling us in Louisville how we should feel and act and what we should do. And they've never even been here. And it's like, you, who took a star turn at the convention, who is giving a very long press conference about this, you're going to take a swipe at activists who want to make a comment about this? He just doesn't want to be criticized publicly. That's what he was he was balking against. It was also just such a... You're not going to say Breonna Taylor's name, but you're going to spend the two minutes talking about celebrities who are going to make a comment about it. It just felt so, like such an off way to focus that conversation and, and think at that moment that was going to be his major criticism that activists and celebrities may make a comment about it. It just felt like very Trumpian and very weird and and what a weird set of priorities in that moment to focus on. Well, and and just as a um, side note here, Daniel Cameron is a um, acolyte of Mitch McConnell. I mean, this guy is not a, you know, like these judges we're talking about. He is not some, uh, you know, objective observer. I mean, the way he handled this is shot through with politics. And I find it, um, I think in the future, uh, I would like to see more investigative reporting about Daniel Cameron and his political rise and what it is that he decided to do here. But that's for another day. Joe, are you, are you signing yourself? Am I what? Assigning yourself? I, you know, I might have just assigned myself a story because I am fascinated with him and I'm fascinated with what goes on in that mind to make those decisions and to look at the world the way he does. I remember I asked um, Ta-Nehisi Coates about this during uh, one of our recent episodes and he was even sort of at a loss, you know, he sort of, he says, what can I say? I just don't know what to think there. It's so hard to understand what the gears that are going on inside that mind Mm. and the level of... Uh, you know, I perceive it as cynicism, but what is it? You know, that's um, the, the human mystery uh, continues. Well, Joe, I feel like you have gotten deeper into the gears inside my mind this week in our therapy session. And yes. I'm so grateful <laughs> for us going through this. Next week, we'll be back with much, much more. We have a very exciting interview next week. I'll keep it a surprise. You're underlining your shirt. Oh, great. Because you You're said how grateful you shirt. were, 
and I'm wearing a Grateful Dead shirt. And you know, last uh, couple episodes ago, we were talked about like, well, what is it you're doing uh, when you're not obsessing on Trump? <clears throat> and out of the blue, about a week and a half ago, um, I just started listening to the Grateful Dead constantly. Mm. It was a little bit of a throwback to some college times that I had in the early 1990s. And I uh, realized that what the you know, people that hate the Grateful Dead, they're like, these songs go on forever. And then I'm realizing now that like, yeah, I, what I really want to do right now is listen to some music that just keeps going on and on and on so that I don't think about anything else. <laughs> Could not agree more. I, I actually feel like that's the perfect song or per- perfect kind of music for this particular moment. I've been listening to... Um, hopefully by the time this comes out tomorrow, it will have arrived for my fiance, but I ordered him, um, a Jerry Rafferty vinyl and I'm very excited about it. I love Jerry Rafferty. For those, uh, Steelers wheel, maybe you heard of them. He was part of Steelers wheel. What a fantastic songwriter. So I list, I, I ordered, um, off eBay, I ordered uh, Right Down the Line, which is our one of our favorite mm. songs. So hopefully it, it. it gets here today and I have not just spoiled a little surprise for him. Mm-hmm. See, we're still trying to, we're still maintaining a lane in our lives for pleasure, happiness, living your life. You've got to. Uh, you've you've got, got to. So everyone who's you listening know. today, go do something that makes you feel good, that takes your mind off of this. Turn off TV, close Twitter. Mm-hmm. Put on a record, listen to the music that you listen to in college, whatever it takes. Just take a break because we've got a busy six weeks ahead. Smell the roses. Mm. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Emily. And that's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Emily Jane Fox, and of course, our sterling producer, Bob Tabador at Cadence 13. If you want to hear more episodes of Inside the Hive, you can subscribe at Apple or Radio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And we will see you next week. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis, no spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.